0: We've got some exciting news for all you CHOP listeners out there. Yes, we are not playing around over here at Mom. New podcast alert! Our friend and drag race sister has launched a new podcast right here on the Forever Dog and Mom Network. Ooh, this is exciting. The lineup is expanding. Say hi to Jinx and her new show, Hi Jinx, with Jinx Monsoon. Ah, that's so cute. It's a different vibe for Mom shows. It's not a recap show or about drag race. It's more of a thoughtful and fun interview with fascinating people. Each week, Jinx will be talking with amazing entertainers, comedians, and inspiring artists about their lives, their careers, and everything in between. Oh, and do you have a celebrity crush? Jinx wants to know. Mmm, I want to say... I I don't... My celebrity crush is probably, um... I don't know. Right now, it's it's Joey J from Drag Race. <laughs> oh wow! Okay, is she a is she a celebrity? Okay. <laughs> so. So here's a preview of the very first episode of High Jinx, and we are so happy to share it with you right here on The Chop. Make sure you search for High Jinx wherever you listen to podcasts, and after you listen, leave a rating and review. Wait, we hope you enjoy. Are you ready for some High Jinx? Because we are. Why did I say Joey J? Forever! <coughs> Dog.
1: I'm Jinx Monsoon, and welcome to Hi Jinx, a podcast where I, an internationally tolerated drag superstar, get to interview compelling and fascinating people about how they became who they are and why they do what they do. Today we are joined by comedian, actor, writer, and cruise ship circuit party enthusiast Joel Kim Booster. Oh my god, what Hi, an intro. Joel. Hi, Jinx. <laughs> How are you today?
2: I'm I'm hum- humiliated uh, oh, by that no. intro. Um, but I didn't write it. Honored and it. humiliated at the same time.
1: I didn't write it, but um, no lies I'm Certainly going to I'm going to probe you about it.
2: Uh- <laughs> Great, just like I was on the cruise ship. Uh, like the last one I went on was like 6,600 gay men um, mm. on the same boat, all working together to smuggle drugs into the same place and uh, it was just amazing it was that one actually was crazy because we were getting on the boat and they shut down there was a bomb one of the bomb dogs um started freaking out and so they shut down the, the entire port and then once we got on the finally got on the boat we found out the reason the bomb dog freaked out is because a lesbian tried to sneak on a decommissioned landmine as a prop for the, the dog tag party and uh <laughs> <laughs> so the bomb dog like freaked out obviously uh because wow. it's a literal bomb that she was bringing onto the boat and wow. unfortunately that lesbian wasn't allowed on the ship
1: and that's oh tragic. my goodness and you know um i'm sure that just came with so many implications oh so the lesbian <laughs> gets kicked off so the lesbian can't bring on a deactivated land mine <laughs> uh, you got guys dropping bombs left yeah. and right around here um <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's the thing. I did have one of the most amazing moments. I um I did a cruise where my music partner Major Scales and I had a show on the cruise, um, and then so did Missy Pyle and Kathy oh and Jimmy. They oh had God. shows on this cruise. And on the last day of the cruise, the last night we were there, I had just quit smoking. Oh. And I don't know how it happened, but Missy Pyle and Kathy and Jimmy walked past me and they were like, we're going to go smoke a cigarette on the back of the cruise ship. Do you want to join us? And I was like... Yeah, I'm smoking again. I'm not going to pass up. Yeah, hanging out with Kathy and Jimmy, and it doesn't <laughs> count if you're doing <laughs> it with Kathy and Jimmy. Exactly, like, everything is fair game, right? Uh, <laughs> and she had the most amazing show on that cruise where she talked about her lifelong obsession with Bette Midler that eventually led to her working with Bette Midler. Uh, and to me, I was like, "That's why are you living the life I always dreamed of, Kathy and Jimmy?" <laughs> well, and I'll tell you what.
2: Here's the thing about my experience doing the cruises. I do them not because they pay well and not because it is a fun experience for me as a comedian. In fact, like agents beg me not to do it because it is like so little money, so below my rate at this point, but I still do it because I love hanging out and I've met so many amazing people from all over the world but the performing comedy on the cruise is actual torture for me it is they hate there is a certain the 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 generation of gay men that actually go to the shows on the cruise ships because there's like people our age mm-hmm. who are just too hungover to go to any of the activities mm-hmm, because mm-hmm, they're there for mm-hmm. the parties and then there's like a whole generation of gay men who are on the boats who do go to the shows and are there to see the sights and go to the shows and that generation of gay men um are not interested in seeing other gay men perform. They wanna see they wanna see drag queens, they wanna see Kathleen and Jimmy doing a Bet Midler inspired Tribute cabaret show, yes. show. Yeah. And that is it. They do they want and they wanna see female comedians, they wanna see Joan Rivers, they do not wanna see like a young gay, Asian boy like myself
1: gorgeous. Yeah. Right. Well, Objectively gorgeous. Don't forget objectively gorgeous. I've started <laughs> to
2: build that into the set sort of tongue in cheek. I'll be like, I know you all hate me because I'm hot. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> And that sometimes works uh, a little bit to get them for on my the side. For the record,
1: but... it's the opposite for me. I am putty in your hands oh. because you're hot. I was such an outcast in high school that now that, like, my work allows me to interact with these beautiful people who I would have been too shy to ever talk to, mm-hmm. you know, 20 years ago. Huh? <laughs> now I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'll do anything you say. Just wrap me in your your biceps, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um uh oh my gosh you know well copy and paste everything you just said about cruises and it also applies to Provincetown oh, and though yeah. I've never been to Fire Island I need to assume, I I I presume I that it's very similar Island, it
2: is very much the same like I went I performed with Cat Cohen and like Kat Cohen is like an amazing cabaret performer, comedian, and who sings. And like the gay men on Fire Island ate that up. And then mm-hmm. I get on stage and start ch- chatting about my little gay life, and they are so uninterested. It is so wild.
1: It's what it is. Is they're there for a week to party, and anything that takes them away from their partying has to be, you know, like top notch. Not saying that our shows aren't top notch, but like they have a very narrow idea of what is worth um taking a break from partying. <laughs> well, and I do think I do think that there is like, and I'm talking about like Gen X and boomer
2: gay men. I do think there is something. And I'm I don't I hope like if you're listening to this and you're a Gen X gay man or a boomer gay man, I'm like please do mm-hmm. not come for me. Mm-hmm. I'm not um trying to to come for you. But I do think there is something to be said for the fact that their generation their gay representation was Joan Rivers and mm-hmm. Kathy Griffin. And like their, like the gay entertainment was all coded in women mm-hmm. in, a, in a very specific way. And oh, they absolutely. weren't used to seeing themselves represented on stage. And when yes. they do see themselves represented on stage, it's a very defensive reaction because it's like, that's not me. You know, like that's, you know, if, unless you're right in line with their experience, it's really hard for them to sort of separate and this is all just my experience. No, I, for gay I audiences. think that's a really like,
1: astute observation.
2: It's it's tough, but people our age and below, I think they're so they're more used to seeing a plurality of gay experiences being represented on stages and on screen and stuff like that, and so they're a little more forgiving when it doesn't align completely with their experience.
1: I think th- I think that's a really great observation. You know, and it was for so long with so little representation of queer people in media and mainstream culture um, for so long. Yeah, it was female, gay male best friends, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's a list of derogatory terms for this type of female, but it's the females we can relate to, you know. Um, mm-hmm. um, uh, and and I always felt like what makes a really great gay icon um, when it comes to, you know, Older women in the biz is that they have to have some form of tragedy, some kind mm-hmm. of obstacle they've had to overcome. <laughs> yeah. But then also just so much humility that they just stand on stage and make fun of themselves. And then we worship them as goddesses. You know? Yes,
2: absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Trauma. We want trauma. We
1: want, I, I think that's why Judy Garland is like the end all be all mm-hmm. of. Gay icons, you know, we could see the pain, and we could see the veneer covering the pain, and that's that's what we related to, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's amazing that we have so much queer representation. But let's talk about this. You are objectively gorgeous. You are objectively oh, beautiful. I don't um, know <laughs> that I have to assume, you know, gives you some you know, open some doors for you in this industry. But then you also have the fact that you are queer and a person of color, which probably has closed many doors. So where's that line that you ride as an objectively gorgeous, marginalized human being? You know, it's funny. (laughs) It's so funny because, like, I've embraced... It
2: sort of, I sort of reverse engineered my hotness, I think, in a, in a way, because when I was starting out, like I've been doing stand up for 10 years and like mm-hmm. the beginning part of my career, I was doing so many self-deprecating jokes about how like it was so hard for me to date because I was so unattractive and so undesirable. Mm. And like that's a really powerful place to come um on stage as a comedian because like yeah. people like to root for that. It's mm-hmm. a much more difficult thing to do to come on stage and be like I'm hot and I know it <laughs> and I'm powerful because <laughs> of that. And like for me I started saying shit like that before I believed it about myself mm-hmm. and before I internalized it about myself because I I just sort of realized that like going on stage and shitting on myself and shitting on how ugly I was. Was so detrimental to my mental health <laughs> mm-hmm, in a mm-hmm. huge way, and and it also is an easy, it's an easier sort of place position to come at comedy from. It's a much harder thing to get your, the audience on your side when you are when your comedic persona is like I'm a hot idiot, you know, um, because <laughs> yes. like nobody wants to root for you. Then it's so much harder to get them on your side in that way. Regard, and here's what I'll say about being a person of color, especially um, an Asian man in this mm-hmm. industry coming on stage and saying, like, I'm hot, I'm desirable. I think I get away with it because I don't think people actually believe it. Mm. I don't think like if I looked like a Sean Coney bottle, <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. think it, I, I don't think if I were as unimpeachably, like, inarguably hot, which I appreciate you saying I am, which I don't think I am. I'm not everybody's type, mm-hmm. but I don't, I, I think it's like funnier to people because they don't believe that I am. They don't wow. agree with me. Um, and so I'm able to get away with it because of that. And I think it's funnier. It's like funny because I'm, I'm an Asian man. And like, I'm saying I'm hot and people don't necessarily believe it. Um, that's and that's fascinating sort of, the of my, the way I approach my comedy in that regard.
1: I, I think that's just, you know, I'm so I, I, I think it's wonderful of you to be able to share it so honestly and candidly, because I think, you know, when we talk about body positivity, when we talk about, you know, celebrating yourself we often aren't thinking about also giving room for hot people to celebrate themselves, <laughs> you know? And that sounds really weird, but I, I, I see it all the time. You know, it's like, we want to celebrate everyone. We want to celebrate our differences. But if you're hot, you should just shut up because you don't yeah. know what it's like to be ugly. But it's like, excuse me, everything is relative, first of all. Mm-hmm. You know, like you don't know another person's story and you can look from the outside into their life and assume they have everything everything all laid out for them because they're hot and beautiful or whatever privileges they might have. And then you don't actually know what their life has been like and you don't actually know what they're dealing with. That said, I mean, there's a lot of privileged people out there who have no idea how the world works (laughs) and and they can be checked in a little bit more, you know? (laughs) I, I just think
2: it was more for me, like as an Asian man, in and knowing how asian men are perceived in the culture at large like mm-hmm. it just felt it felt it just felt demoralizing to go on stage every night and be like yeah i'm asian and i'm undesirable and unattractive and that's and like having people laugh at that which was like mm. you know it just didn't feel good after a while and so i sort of overcorrected um after a while and like you did and then correctional I, and then I writing. Started, I, I started <laughs> believing it a little bit more. And it and, and then I started, you know, it it just it, I reverse-engineered my self-esteem in a big way through comedy.
1: I think that's amazing. And I think it's really important to think of yourself, you know, in terms of like, how do I create the comedy I want to create, but also consider my own feelings in mm-hmm. this you know there have been there were times in the past where i would bring up stuff on stage that i was currently dealing with right and then i realized you know i mean that happened here and there some rough moments in my life and i'd bring up bring it up on stage cuz i think if i can get everyone to laugh at it with me and if i can laugh at it myself it'll feel less traumatic the po- problem with that is, is when you're asking your audience to do that with you, mm-hmm. you you're not really entertaining them. You're hosting a group therapy session. Exactly. You <laughs> and, have to have distance. You have to have, yeah. be able
2: to have some sort of outside perspective on what you're dealing with. Because I'll I'll tell you, frankly, like my dad just passed away.
0: I'm um, sorry to hear like that. Like two and a half
2: weeks ago. Thank you. And I did two shows yesterday where I finally I, I tried to address it. Mm-hmm. Like it comedically mm-hmm. in a way. And it, it sort of worked. But I realized afterwards in reflecting on it, I was like, no, like I'm still too much in mm-hmm. my grieving process to have the distance I need to be able to joke about this effectively. Because yeah. I think like it's just still obvious that I'm still like in, the, in like I'm still grieving. And I think like that makes people uncomfortable. And like I do think it will be possible to make jokes about my dad dying. Um, eventually, because I think like I'm the kind of comedian that sort of cannibalizes every part of my life Mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. for material and I will eventually be able to talk about it. But I do think like I'm just in it right now. Yeah, I'm just like in it. It happened two weeks ago, you know, and it's just like it's not I'm not ready to do it yet. And I and that it took me trying to yesterday to really realize that.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I, I fully believe that like the best work Comes from something you're already, you've already processed. Yeah, because if you're processing it on stage, you're asking your audience to do a little bit more than what you, <laughs> what a typical <laughs> audience member signs up for when they buy a ticket to your comedy show. You know, right, absolutely, <laughs> and. I've 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 made it a rule with myself like I one of my last touring shows the ginger snapped is largely about my relationship to alcohol and in the show it's like Jinx is kind of realizing maybe she has a problem and I only feel comfortable doing that show you know now um, a year and nine months sober it's like I can laugh at these horrible drunk moments from my life now because I did the work to not still be going through mm-hmm. that, you know? Yes. <laughs> so you've talked in your stand-up about um, being adopted by white parents and being yes. raised evangelical, and you were homeschooled till you were 16. Uh-huh. Um, how... How has that affected your life as a as a gay man and where does it find its way into your comedy? Um, I mean,
2: in my early stuff, it is all over the place. I think like mm-hmm. it is a lot of introspection about like the way I grew up and the sort of the, the dysphoria of having mm-hmm. growing up in a white family and um, not being surrounded by Asian people until I was like probably didn't meet my first Asian person until I was in middle school you know oh, wow. like and so there's a lot that comes a lot of baggage that comes along with yeah. that, that is easy to mine for for comedy like you know talking yeah. about you know the racism I experienced and even like the little like you know my, you know my mom's side of the family is from the south and so like there's a lot of like even just within my own family the st- baggage that I have to deal with um that my white brother and sister don't have to deal with mm-hmm. um and so mm-hmm. like it definitely um came a a lot and a lot of it my a lot of my comedy is very like anti-shame like I talk Mm -hmm. about uh, my sex life very frankly I talk about Mm -hmm. my partying very frankly I talk about every aspect of my life very frankly and I think it's because I grew up in a home where we did not talk about sex we did Mm -hmm. not talk about real stuff we did not talk about what was actually going on in in the world or in our lives um, because everything was so deeply suppressed and so I think a lot of my comedy is a reaction a direct reaction to the way I was brought up, you know, as a Christian and and things like that. And yeah, it's um, it's it was tough. And it was like weird being I was just home for two weeks um, dealing with stuff because of my dad's passing. And it is so wild. Like it, I used to be so aggressively anti religion and sort of like mm-hmm. um, and I and I'm not like pro Christianity, certainly not pro evangelical Christianity yet, but it mm-hmm. is like weird, like It's the only thing that's keeping my mom afloat at this moment. Mm -hmm. And to see that, like, I am sort of like, well, you know what? It doesn't bring me any comfort. Mm -hmm. It doesn't like, no, like, you know, but it is certainly like uh, something that is keeping my mom stable. And so I'm thankful for that. And so it's weird to like come full circle around like my family's religion a little bit and be like, well, I'm glad my mom has that. It doesn't do anything for me, but I'm Mm -hmm. glad my mom has that.
1: Well, has uh, have the religious people in your family been able to still support you in, in your identity or does it cause roadblocks for you?
2: It definitely is very much like we don't, it's a don't ask, don't tell situation. Mm-hmm. Like my mom has never once asked like, are you dating anybody? Like, mm-hmm. are you happy? Are you, you know, like what's going on in that facet of your life? And it was very difficult, like, I I, I'm glad and I'm glad I came to this place before my dad passed but like you know it was very hard for them for a while because there were so many just you realize all the things that they don't ask about you Mm -hmm. know like they don't Mm -hmm. they're very uncurious about my career um, because they and because they know that like they won't approve of it. Like I don't mm. need to hear, I, my parents don't need to hear how like, you know, a story about me fisting a guy <laughs> on stage, you know, like that's just not something that I don't think any parent religious or not would care to hear about. And so like, it's difficult because like they never were parents that would like come to my shows or watch me until I was on a fucking NBC sitcom and they didn't even know um, that I was <laughs> that's, on it.
1: That's just, that's kind of mind blowing, you know, that's, um, uh, I I feel like I had a, a I was raised in an environment that was there were lots of little secrets. There were things that I only could talk to my grandma about and my mom couldn't know about it and vice versa. And, you know, I was raised by a little coven of witches, you know, um, it was mostly women raising all the kids of my generation and so I always felt like I had three moms growing up. But it was a lot of little secrets. It was a lot of, like, um, lingering Catholic influence from my mm-hmm. from my grandmother down. And um, so lots of little secrets. And it's taken a lot of, like, I've kind of just had to say fuck it and just be open with my family these days. Because for so long, I did keep so much of myself secret because I thought, oh, they're never going to understand Um, And lately, it's not like they truly understand everything it means to be a trans femme drag queen queer person, you know, (laughs) in the public eye. But they really they really support me. And I think it's been like one of my biggest boons in life is that my family has been able to stand behind me in all my major decisions. But, yeah, it's always nerve wracking because my my material is unapologetically foul-mouthed and slutty and mm-hmm. and I talk about myself like I'm the world's biggest slut, like my ass is a black <laughs> hole that just swallows people alive. My mom comes up in a lot of my stories and then I'll have her in the audience and I was like having this teeny tiny panic attack one night because I told the story of my mom revealing that Santa Claus wasn't real in one of my holiday shows. And then she came to see it where I paint her as this mommy dearest Joan Crawford, (laughs) like monster mom. And I didn't know how to, like, navigate that moment on stage. And then what happened when I was telling the story live in front of an audience and she was watching, I said, and that's the moment my mom ruined Christmas for me. And she's right over there. (laughs) (laughs) Like, the spotlight follows and finds my mom in the audience. But then the audience started cheering for her. Yeah. And it was like my mom kind of reveled in this moment of like, it's me, everybody. It's me. (laughs) So Uh. lately I've been finding finding ways to, um, invite them in. But it is, it's like, I, you know, even to have a supportive family, it's scary to share that part of your life. Mm -hmm. You know, we build, we, we leave home and we build a chosen family And these people have so many shared experiences. I I mean, I don't assume your chosen family situation, but I have to assume. Yeah, no. You know, you make work friends, you become family. And whether it's your chosen queer family or your chosen comedy family or your chosen industry family, you know, it's hard once you become. That's gross. I don't. (laughs) My chosen industry family. Oh, don't Ah, like that at all. You know, my agent is the crotchety grandpa. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you you surround yourself, you know, as a queer adult, you typically surround yourself with people who have shared experiences and you get so used to that that it's hard to then go back to the family.
2: I mean, I haven't been home for Christmas in like a decade. Oh, wow. And um, because I spend it with chosen family and and same with Thanksgiving. Like, you know, I go home and visit but like twice a year and like I see them and this was it was so jarring to be home for two weeks extended and just like realize all of the different things that like I missed about having my my family family Mm -hmm. and all of the 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 sort of places that my chosen queer family has really like filled in mm-hmm. the blanks you know yeah like because they're like i love my family but they just can't be everything for me and that's yeah. what, you know and and it's really hard to come to terms with that and it's really hard even harder to make it not a judgment an intrinsic judgment on them on my mom or my parents yeah. as like parents you know or absolutely just you know like some families just you you fill in the gaps where you can with your chosen family and that's what i've done and um I don't think it's it's it means anything negative about my own family. It's just no. you know not every family can be everything.
1: One of the um I wasn't expecting to learn this life lesson in acting school, but one <laughs> lesson I learned from um one of my favorite teachers in acting school is somehow stuff about my mom, you know, like I went to college right after high school and my high school years were my most difficult years with my mother where our relationship was really, really strained. Um, and a lot of that came up in my, you know, my like introspective work in, in acting school. And we're like having a circle jerk of emotions, you know? <laughs> and one teacher just said to me, have you ever considered that maybe there was someone else in your life who was your mom. And your mom, even though she gave birth to you, filled a different role in your life. And I realized then, my mom may have given birth to me, but at many moments in my life, she felt more like an older sister. Yeah. And like my grandma was kind of raising both of us. And I can talk about this now. I feel okay talking about this now because my mom has done a lot of work on herself and we're at this really great place. She's at this really great place. Again, so it's like, I feel like, comfortable to bring it up because we're not currently going through it. Mm-hmm. Um but learning that kind of also cracked open a lot of stuff for me. You know like just because we've been told something our whole life does not make it true. Right. <laughs> you know just because we've been told that if you're born with a penis you're male and that's it and then the only way to become a woman is to have your penis removed. That's all false. That's all just what we've been told, you Mm -hmm. know, (laughs) and learning those kind of things in your adulthood kind of, you know, just blows your mind open. It's a paradigm
2: shift for sure.
1: Absolutely. And then it's like, how much more fun is life when you realized that there's no parents and there's no rules and you get to make it up as you go. (laughs) Um, Let's. Let's take a hard left turn and uh, talk about your career some, okay. because you know you're everywhere these days. Um, oh. You've been a stand-up comedian, and now you're having all this um, mainstream media success. We see you on network television. Shall I? Shall I read some of oh, your? Please
2: don't. <laughs> I feel like the last year has been so depressing career-wise because like nothing's been happening oh, for well. very, for anybody. Um, but what
1: what I will say to our listeners is you have. Have a phone. You have a magic wand in your hand. Google Joel Kim Booster because you have know. a very impressive um, resume dossier. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to know what was the transition like from um, stand-up comedy which is just inherently more indie more you know underground yeah yeah and then now you're working with network television you're working in writer rooms writers rooms (laughs) (laughs) what what has that transition been like for you and do you have a preference now that you've tried both
2: you know i i will always 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 want to do stand-up as long as i have something interesting to say Mm -hmm. you know um i you know I, I do think there are a lot of famous stand-ups that get to a point where there's continuing to do stand-up and they don't have anything interesting mm. to say anymore. Mm-hmm. I think that happens. <laughs> I, think that, I think that some people get to a point where they're so rich and so outside of real life that mm. they mm-hmm. no longer have anything relatable to say. And And I think that it's, it's total. and when I get to that point, I hope I realize it. Mm-hmm. I, I hope I get to that point. Honestly, mm-hmm. I hope I get to the point where I'm so rich that I I I am no longer have <laughs> Two feet on the planet Earth anymore.
1: Um,
2: <laughs> but I'll always, no matter how much success I, I get, I, I I'll want to do stand up. Um, mm. Hopefully, I will say that like my experience doing that network sitcom, Sunny Side, um, was really nice because which they I
1: really loved your character. Oh, on thank that. you so much. Yeah. Um, I had a blast
2: <laughs> doing it and. They really let us sort of create those characters, yeah have a hand in creating those characters, mm-hmm. I mean like they they really like they cast me and they they sort of was like, this is." This is your vibe. And like they let us, me and Poppy, who played my sister on that show, Mm -hmm. really take control of like the direction that those characters took. So I didn't feel like I was sacrificing anything. I didn't feel like I was like watering myself down to be on an NBC sitcom, you know, like it was Mm -hmm. as close to me and my sort of vibe as it could be on network TV. And so that felt really great. And it spoiled me a little bit because, you know, I've gotten Other offers, and I've I've done other projects since then that have been more mainstream, and it is tougher to sort of, you know, take a step back and and let somebody else be in the driver's seat of Mm -hmm. your material in a big way. Um, In terms of writing, I, I I find it very easy to go in and like be a workhorse for somebody else's vision. I'm mm-hmm. not I don't have a lot of ego when it comes to being in somebody else's like working on Big Mouth for the last three years, like has been really great and really fun and really collaborative. And like you come in and you just like you shoot the shit and talk about your childhood for a while. And then eventually you get to the point where the scripts are written and you're just punching up and pitching jokes and you're servicing somebody else's big idea. And that feels really it's like humbling and it's fun. And, um, you know, there will come a point hopefully in the future. Where I will be in the position where people will be servicing me mm-hmm. and my vision, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I hope that you know people are similarly like game to do that for me. Um, but I love it.
1: Yeah, I do find you know, I I I've I think the biggest lesson I learned in art school was if there's not work out there for you, create your own work. Yeah, you know, if you aren't getting role offers because there aren't the right roles for you out there, then create those roles, you know, I mean, and it's easier said than done. That's of why course, I but... started
2: doing stand up in the first place. I wanted yeah. to be an actor first, you know, and this was back in like 2011 and I was like getting called in to be Chinese food delivery boys and like <sighs> lab technicians on Chicago fire. And I was like, <laughs> none of this is interesting. None of this feels like me. None <laughs> of this like is, 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 um, you know, something that I, this is not the vision that I had for myself as an artist was like being a Chinese food delivery boy over and over and over again. Um, and so I started doing stand-up because I was like, let me just create this other person that I can be on stage and, and fulfill that this need that I have. Mm-hmm. And, and it, and it worked because now like I'm getting hired because of that person that I've created on stage, not, you know, um, necessarily the other way around. Like people come to me and say like, we like this person, person that you have created and we want to put that in this situation and so like it, it it worked like i looked up really heavily to people like um mindy kaling and mm-hmm. male Nanjani and people like that who like had were in similar positions i mean mindy like i had never say what you will about the office now like in hindsight um but like that character i had never seen an asian character quite mm-hmm. like um, um kelly kapoor and when I found out that like it was Mindy Kaling who like drove that character and like was in the writers' room saying like this is the character that I want to create, I was mm-hmm. like that's inspiring to me. And I was like, oh, I guess I need to not be an actor. I need to be a writer, mm-hmm. um, and like really figure out how to create those p- those opportunities for myself and not wait around for some white guy to get it right. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, that's that's huge. I mean, I really love I really love just being an actor and just showing up. Yeah, and delivering so the easy. lines, you know, it's that's so a easy. lot of fun. Yeah. And then all the costumes are decided for you. And, yes. and you just get to show up and be, you know, talent. And I really love that. But I do, you know, there are moments where I have to be like, just so you know, no one... In my demographic, would ever say this. You know, like, can we talk a little bit about what actually gets said in these moments? Or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's definitely, I think, especially like, I think when, when a new demographic is gaining representation in mainstream media, there's this natural progression where it starts out as the archetype, and they start Mm -hmm. out as like they come in, they're an archetype they say a catchphrase or a one-liner that really like nails it on the head. Like, Oh, that's what you expect from this person. And then they disappear. And then we get to like letting them actually have a story arc and letting them actually kind of tell their story. And then I went when I feel like we're at a new place of representation is when that person gets to be kind of horrible. (laughs) You know? When that person representing that demographic gets to show us like, oh, remember that we're also human beings and human beings are not perfect shining examples of anything. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think... That's what was really enjoyable about Mindy's character on The Office, which is absolutely a guilty pleasure of mine.
2: Exactly. (laughs) And it's such a fine line between, like, because I still get called in for, like, officious... Uh, like assistant and officious mm. is just another word for faggot in yeah. like the breakdown. Like that's what that's fastidious. the word that they're using. Yeah, fastidious, fussy. assistant. <laughs> yeah, fussy. Exactly, exactly. Those are the breakdowns that you're getting, and mm-hmm. like it's and like those are so boring in, in a special way. But then you get you do get called in for these like idealistic gay like perfect like mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. there to be like. The shining example of what's good and what's right in this world that of, of the show, whatever show you're getting called in for. And it's like, well, that's an overcorrect. That's like boring. That's so boring. Like that's just as two dimensional as the fussy assistant. Yeah. And it's not interesting.
1: Uh, yeah, I find that like, first of all, I think it's amazing that there have been a handful of auditions that I've been given that this is a non-binary character written for a Mm non-binary person to play. But it almost is always like this mystical sage, like, because I'm not weighed (laughs) down by gender, I can see the (laughs) truth that you have missed, you know? And it's like, what happens half the time when I do these auditions, and you know, I've yet to land that big role, but um, sometimes I will do the audition for the non-binary person, but then I will say, have you considered that maybe this character doesn't need this other character? doesn't need to be strictly masculine or feminine. Have you considered that maybe, you know, like um like I'll say like there's a demon in this show. Who says the demon has to fit into gender norms? You yeah, know? right. <laughs> like there's a <laughs> genie. If anyone's going to be like like let the non-binary person play the genie and let <laughs> let someone else be the sage-wise mystic, you know. <laughs> I want to know, um, you talked a little bit about your very frank talking about sexuality in your work. This is something I kind of just made a decision one day, like, I'm going to stop holding back when it comes to talking about sex, Mm -hmm. because almost everything that was holding me back about sex was something I had learned, something I was like, conditioned to believe is true when actually like what is wrong with being a sexually active person? Uh Like, what is wrong with having sex with multiple different people in a year? Like, like, we are not living in the 50s. I do not raise a nuclear family. Like, there's no reason for me to worry about how much sex I'm having. Um, How has the reaction to your sex positivity in your own work been?
2: You know, it's funny. Like, when I was starting out, the conventional wisdom for gay comics at the time, especially where I was at in Chicago, was like, "Do not go blue," because the last thing an audience wants to be reminded of is the fact that you're having sex. Mm. Um, they don't want to think about you having anal sex. They just don't, and and mm. it'll turn it'll turn the audience away from you immediately. Don't work blue, and that's what everyone told me when mm-hmm. I was starting out, and like, it just felt so limiting and so annoying. And so it was a bit of an overcorrect when I started talking about sex, really frankly. But for me, it's not about like saying like my life is like... Is so out there and so sexual, and like the sex that I'm having is so different and and funny. It's not. It's finding the universal experience of mm. within. Like we all have sex. I mean, yeah. Uh, other than our our my our, my gray ace brothers and sisters. Yes. And and Nbs. Um. You know there are, but for a lot of people, sex is a, is a, an experience that we all share. Mm-hmm. And so, like, even though, like. My story might be about a guy coming in my eye and giving me pink eye, you know, like that. theres some There's got to be something that every audience can relate to within that experience of having come in my eye and giving mm-hmm. me pink eye. Um, and so I'm going to find it and I'm going to bring it. And here's the thing, like I don't perform it only in L.A. and New York. I'm mm-hmm. going to like one of my favorite clubs is in Bloomington, Indiana, you know, like uh, you, Madison, Wisconsin. Um, you know, Kansas city, like places where like, it's not necessarily bastions of like gay, you mm-hmm. know, um, queer spaces. Like, and so like I've had to make it work. And the thing is, is like people, when you're funny, when it's funny and you find that universality, people will laugh mm-hmm. no matter what. And that's what yeah. I found. And like, it doesn't have to be alienating if you're confident, if you're not apologizing for it, like that, mm-hmm. the audience senses the fear, the mm-hmm. audience will sense the fear. Like, t- a ten steps ahead of you before you even get to the punchline, and so that's what I've had to really learn about it. It's just to like go in and unapologetically and not be afraid to touch on those aspects of my life, and like they 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 want most audiences are are just want you to be funny, yeah, they, ju- they really do. They they just be f- they're just not, make
1: me laugh. They're <laughs> not rooting
2: against you know, and so like I think if you can find. And the find the stuff that is universal in the very specific way we have sex, then like, yeah, um, it it, it works all the time. It works almost always. Um, Yeah. I find that most the people that are most offended by some of my material are gay people. Mm. (laughs) I think a lot of uh, respectability politics um, (laughs) uh, come into play when like they're like, well, you're, you know you're one, you're, you're a well-known gay, like you're out there representing us. And is this mm-hmm. how you want to represent us as oversexed and, and slutty and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, I believe that there are other gay comedians out there who aren't. And I believe that like my audiences are smart enough to know that I'm not speaking and not representing an entire community. Well, absolutely. And I, I, I
1: never asked to be. You know? No one person should be speaking for an entire yeah. community because every community is so multifaceted one. And two, it's like, why should we, you know, I, I've dealt with this a lot being a drag queen for 18 years. You know, I've, I I dealt with the stigma before drag race existed and um, people telling me that performing in drag was holding our community back, you know, and I'm like, But actually, it's always been there and it's a part of our community. So why aren't we allowed to share this, you know? And one of the things I love about the queer community is the ability to talk about sex like just a fact of life, you know? And also to leave room and understanding for people who, like you said, like um, asexual people who sex isn't a big part of their life, but they still have a relationship to it. You yeah. know, like, they still know what it is. They still know that it exists. And and there are universal things that can speak to people who aren't having sex because they've probably dealt with people putting their preconceived notions yeah. on them. I When I started really, like, just telling my stories on stage, like, I used to put a lot more, like, veils over it and you know tell a fictionalized version of the story and now i just fully tell my audiences about the time a guy lost a condom up my butt you know (laughs) (laughs) and um the moral of the story at the end is you know i asked how that happened because it had never happened to me before and in retrospect i'm like it's so clear the guy had whiskey dick And his dick lost the condom. That's that. You know, like, that's what happened. Um, But he told me at the time that my ass was too tight. And I said, wait a second. Isn't that the point? Like, who's fucking loose assholes?
2: (laughs) No one's losing condoms and loose
1: assholes. (laughs) You know, isn't it a good thing my ass was tight? And the moral of the story at the end is like, um, you know, I'm not going to let someone blame me for something they did to me, (laughs) you know? And I think that's something we can all relate to uh, in terms of sex. But I had to ask myself, like, because I do look out into my audience and I'm like, sometimes I'll get thrown off because I'm like, oh no, is that person offended? Did I I just offend that person? Should I like find a way to apologize to this person on stage? You know, (laughs) I get really in my head sometimes. But then I had to ask myself, Who is most likely to be offended by me talking about sex? You know, like mm-hmm. people who people who are still clinging on to things that our religion has taught us or that our society has taught us. And am I really that afraid of offending them? You know, I like, am right. actually not worried if like if what you are is just trying to silence me, then go ahead and be offended. You know, yeah. <laughs> there's no refunds at this point. You know? <laughs> like, you can't. And I've, I've had some people walk out. I had like an 80 year old woman walk out of my show once. It was her birthday. And she was like this It was just not how I wanted to spend my birthday. And you know what? God bless her. She shouldn't have to. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you know, you just, you, you kind of, conviction goes a long way in this industry, especially with comedy, I think. I just I'm so enamored with you. I think you're just doing God's work out there.
2: Oh. God bless you.
1: <laughs> I I really love watching your Star Rise. Now I have some questions for you that have nothing to do with anything. Are you ready Please. for them? Yes. Who's your celebrity crush?
2: Um Manny Jacinto.
1: Oh my god, he's one of mine. I yeah. have new ones every episode, but Oh
2: my god, yes. He's Jeez Louise, just everything. Um and he's so nice too. We met, uh, we, we had, we were forced together a lot during my NBC days and, mm-hmm. um, he's just like the kindest guy. And I have a couple of videos on YouTube where people say that I look like him and it is the greatest compliment, um, I've ever received <laughs> is to be compared to being Jacinto because his he's cheekbones. just
1: me... an Adonis.
2: Yeah. He makes me look like I have jowls comparing our cheekbones. Um, <laughs> you, and I You love can it. cut
1: ice on almost any part of him, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Oh, he's so gorgeous. And then that character on The Good Place. Yeah. I've always had a soft spot for just hot idiots, you yes. know. If they have a good heart. I don't care how dumb you are if you have a good heart,
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> you know. Um, I I just, uh, what, what a fabulous show that was. But he was definitely one of, you know, one of the reasons to watch Uh <laughs> I always say someone different, but today I'm going to say my celebrity crush is Jared Goldstein because he just did, oh, his, yeah, he did that, an Instagram that, takeover. Yes, I saw it. And I saw, did you see the
2: picture he posted the recently?
1: Trap, and it's like, well, guess what I've been doing during quarantine? Just becoming freaking shredded. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Outrageous! We were on a cruise together, Jared and I. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And I did not see any of that on the cruise.
1: <laughs> I loved how matter-of-fact, like, he was doing a live on my Instagram, and, like, all his friends were popping up just to ask him about, like, so what's all this about your abs all of a sudden? And he was like, yeah. He was just so like, matter of fact, like, yeah, aren't I so gorgeous? Like, wow, like who knew? Um, I love him. So he's my celebrity crush right now. Um, I want to ask, our listeners don't know this, but you're wearing a SeanCody.com t-shirt, which I absolutely love because a middle school bully of mine ended up doing um, Sean Cody. So there's something kind of, magical about seeing someone who used to torment you, take it up the ass. Yeah. I don't know. And then I felt like able to forgive him. I was like, is, is this why, <laughs> is this why you were mean to me is because you were sad that I was living my queer life while you yeah. were repressing your desire <laughs> to bottom, like, like a, like a lovely little, mm, he was such a good bottom too. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I recently fi- met
2: <laughs> the first Asian Sean Cody model. Oh yeah, um, recently, yeah. I think Dale, he went by Dale then, and he's Jacob Ethan Dale now on OnlyFans, and he's a lovely human. And I was like, "What a trailblazer!" Like, yeah. you, like you, somebody needs to tell your story um, to be <laughs> Asian. on You Sean can Cody. write the
1: one man show. Yeah, um, <laughs> um I want to know what's your favorite porn scene of all time.
2: My favorite porn scene of all time. Wow, that's a really tough one. I'm, I'm a big um proponent of of porn on Twitter. And mm-hmm. so like, I'm trying to think of like something that I've seen recently that really got me going. Um,
1: I love this new era of self-produced porn. You yeah. know? I, I think it's brilliant, but my favorite, maybe this will strike an idea in you. Have you ever seen Oliver Twink? No. <laughs> it's the, one of the most amazing parodies. Um, this, um, this, Uh, drag queen Misty Eyes, who does wonderful makeup and drag tutorials on YouTube, um, is in it as Nancy. But of course, the scene that matters most to me is Oliver Twink is on his knees. Mr. Bumble comes all over him and he looks up at the camera and says, please, Please, sir, sir. I want some more. more." (laughs) I'm fucking brilliant. How do you get better than that? (laughs) Um, I think one of my favorite scenes probably
2: is... um, Aspen gets hypnotized. I'm really into, um, like, hypnotism in porn. I think it's so hot. Um, And it's just, like... Is this Aspen the famous
1: uh, gay-for-pay straight male model?
2: Yeah, I think so. Does he have
1: the tattoo on his arm? that says Aspen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've been following him for a while because I just adore him. He's bottoming a ton now in porn. It's it's um like his big story is that he's a straight guy who does gay for pay porn and is just chill with it and loves it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I know that you know. Um, I think you uh, you you have to deconstruct some of society's expectations of you to be right. a straight man who takes it up the ass, and I I kind of just love that. Yeah. <laughs> Aspen gets hypnotized. How? Yeah. How's the acting? Um, I mean, pretty if bad. If you had to give it a star pretty rating, pretty
2: bad. I would <laughs> say it is. Uh, it's it's definitely like a sixty eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Um,
1: <laughs> I love porn acting for the things that like the uh, watching people pretend they can't see people having sex right next to them is probably my favorite thing oh, about yeah. porn today. <laughs> <laughs> I want to give you a chance to um, promote anything you've got going on. Plug away.
2: Um, okay. <laughs> I, I have a podcast of my own called Urgent Care, which is an advice podcast that I do with my one of my very good friends, Mitra Jahari. Um, that people can download now. Um, they can check out, you know, any of my stuff on YouTube. My Comedy Central special is available um there's a lot of stuff that i can't talk about yet which is crazy (laughs) i know i would i wish there was more and i'm i'm not just saying that because i feel sad um but um yeah just check out you know my instagram and um i hate joel kim all of my handles and stuff like that
1: (laughs) if you um are like me and you're terrible with names but the second you see a face and you're like oh my gosh I've seen Joel Kim Booster everywhere I got to meet you we met for the first time in San Francisco in San Francisco for um, Clusterfest Clusterfest yes that was such a um, I felt like my I loved doing the um, the Culturistas um, the I Don't Think So Honey yes I loved doing that Um, my staged reading was kind of a a crazy thing we uh, five drag queens did Spice Girls right yes yes. yeah yeah, I I was was a big part in that as well what was crazy Crazy about is they had five famous drag queens portraying the Spice Girls as we did the live staged reading of the movie Spice World. And in the moment while we're performing this in front of an audience, we realize that the Spice Girls have almost no lines in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> so all the supporting cast is sitting off stage while five famous drag queens just sit on stage and do nothing for almost like an hour and a half. And Bianca
2: was <laughs> Bianca was narrating it and I remember it was going on so Long, the Comedy Central people kept just sending hours of us. Send, sending, <laughs> Bianca notes, being like, skip to page so and so, like, skip ahead, skip ahead, skip ahead, skip ahead, because there just was just not so enough. So
1: much time of just the five of us just sitting there. And then it's like these amazing performers are sitting off stage, giving these really great performances, but the audience can't see them. They're just watching the drag queens on stage sitting there doing nothing i had to sit in a bean bag as ginger spice and it was the most uncomfortable thing i've ever done in drag but it was worth it to go to the after party and party yeah. with all you comedians afterwards because next to drag queens you want to know people who can drink stand-up comedians yeah. y'all can drink y'all are almost your honorary drag queens just yeah. from the way you party after a show it was an amazing experience and you're an amazing person so thank thank you you so much for being on
0: I had an absolute blast a delight thank
1: you me too what a delight everyone I want to thank you so much for listening to Hi Jinx here on the Forever Dog and Moguls of Media Network my name is Jinx Monsoon and we have new episodes every Wednesday so make sure to search for Hi Jinx on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe you can follow me at The Jinx on Instagram or Jinx Monsoon everywhere else. And that's spelt J-I-N-K-X. You have to use the K because I paid extra for it. Now, I'll see you next Wednesday for some more. Hi, Jinx. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, Jinx. <laughs> Forever. To listen to Hi Jinx ad free and one day early, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcasts.com/slash-plus. Make sure to follow at Forever Dog Team and at Mom Podcasts on social, and rate and review Hi Jinx five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi Jinx is produced by Forever Dog and Moguls of Media, aka. Mom, hosted by me, Jinx Monsoon, produced by Big Dipper, editing and sound design by Will Pitts, executive produced by Willem Belli, Alaska Thunderfuck, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey.